All right, because three is a crowd. I'm here today for the 100th episode Whee! anniversary. <laughs> That's right, Kelly. We made it to 100 episodes. Wild. That doesn't seem right. It seems crazy. It also seems like we've done way more than 100. It could be because we have. We definitely have done more than 100, but 100 songs nonetheless, I mean, including albums and all of that, it's still quite a milestone. I don't think we could have anticipated it when we were doing episode one back in the bunker in our bunker days and uh, unlistenable, I would say, (laughs) absolutely unlistenable. And for episode 100, we're also testing out brand new mics because that's what you do on the 100th episode. You say this for the last episode of the season, too. We're just going to have new mics. Fuck it. Destroy continuity. That's what we're all about. So what are we all about, Kelly, after 100 episodes? This, of course, is Sign on the Window. This is a Bob Dylan podcast, but it's not a typical Bob Dylan podcast. No, we choose a song at random, and we've chosen a song at random for three years or an album or whatever. And during the week, we create a public Spotify playlist. We put it in there, pick, pick songs that we enjoy, and we listen to it. And then we get together at the end of the week and we talk about it, which is what we're doing right now. We talk about the song as a piece of art. We talk about it as a piece of music, as a piece of history. I've been listening to Bob Dylan for most of my life. Kelly has heard roughly the same number of songs as the number of points that Will Chamberlain scored in one game on March 2nd, 1962. And this week, episode 100. 100. Dirge off of 1974's Planet Waves. He scored 100 by himself? By himself. I hate myself for loving you And the weakness that it shows Just a painted face on a trip down Suicide Road. The stage was set, the lights went out all around the old hotel. I hate myself for loving you, and I'm glad the curtain fell. All right, Kelly, we spent an entire week, the final week of season three. Of Sign on the Window. This is our last episode for a minute. Or ever. Stay tuned. Jesus. We spent it with Dirge. 1974's Dirge. We have not had a single episode from Planet Waves. Until now. We we listened to Planet Waves on the, I guarantee you, unlistenable episode five. Where we listened to the album. That was oh, our yeah, very no, first I mean, album. We definitely talked about this song specifically. And this song specifically, yeah. Because it was so different than all the rest. And definitely, I mean, instantly sadder, not only tonally, but like lyrically way different than like, you angel, you. <laughs> you know, and it's very different. It's very strange. Or even the wedding song, you know, we talked mm-hmm. a lot about that. We have not gotten any, though, surprisingly. After 100 episodes, I'm so happy that we get to talk about Planet Waves. Definitely an undersung record. Definitely a weird record. You spent probably more time with Dirge than I did Yes. this week. Um, how how was it just in general with Dirge? It's a beautiful song. Yeah, uh, it's really impressive that just the piano and acoustic guitar, it it definitely has a quality to it where it's just two guys in a room hanging out playing instruments and just like okay, this is how the song is going to mostly go. It's in the key of G minor. Let's just let's just do it. And Bob's like, I'll play these two chords for the most part over and over again and. We'll just noodle around. Yeah. And that's what happens for five and a half minutes. And it's good. Yeah. No, 
it hel- it helps too when you noodle around with somebody that you noodled around with professionally in a basement six years ago. Oh, so it's like guitar. Robbie Robertson's on guitar. So I think that there's a chemistry and a communication between the two that I don't think you would have with someone else, right? So you can sit down and Bob can essentially play it, and but and Robbie just picks it up. He's like, oh, I know what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Let me get this flamenco style. Let's just go for yeah. it. And I think if it wasn't Robbie Robertson, this song could have actually been strange. So apparently it, there is another version of the song that exists probably somewhere, maybe in some vault, who even knows. Or it's lore, essentially, that it was created or not. So a little bit of context beyond the song. It was recorded for Planet Waves on November 14th, 1973. But he went into the studio on November 10th, 1973 to record the wedding song. And Forever Young. And there's also on the tape logs a song called Dirge for Martha. Hmm. Now, without getting into it, the, the, essentially the lore behind the song is that one of Bob Dylan's friends, Lou Kemp, his girlfriend, whose name is probably Martha, who knows, said about Forever Young, what are you getting soft, old man, or whatever? Oh, right. And I so think Bob, we talked about that. Right, I think we did. And Bob was like, I'll show you soft. Boom. Uh, I, I think that's silly. I mean, I don't think Bob Dylan is writing... A, a song with so many layers to be like in your face, Martha. I'm not. Although putting the song after Forever Young, a nice little cute song like Forever Young, and then having this is definitely a very Bob Dylan thing to do. But at the time, uh, one of his friends, Rob Forboni, who was there with him in the studio, um, said that there is an acoustic take where it's just Bob on acoustic guitar. Hmm. Which, okay, right? I mean, you can kind of hear it, but it wouldn't be nearly the same. Uh, he does believe, however, as most people believe, that he wrote Dirge in the sessions. So he wasn't bringing it from elsewhere. He wrote it there. Like, the song just kind of, like, came there. I mean, if that's the case, uh, bullshit. Because there are some amazing fucking lines in this that's song. Amazing. And if he was just like, oh, yeah, that just came to me. Fuck that guy. I mean, I mean. <laughs> so then Planet Waves, the cut was uh, four days later. Uh, Village Recorder, Santa Monica, California, same spot. Um, they were actually mixing the record. They were done with the record. And Bob was like, I want one more try on Dirge. Uh, and he just goes in there and just starts kind of playing on the piano. He's like, I want to try it with piano. Uh, Rob Forboni says, uh, said later to the Recording Engineer magazine, he said, quote, Bob went out and played the piano while we were mixing. All of a sudden, he came in and said, I'd like to try Dirge on the piano. We put up a tape and said to Robbie, maybe you could play guitar. And he just said, maybe you could play guitar on this. Um, and then in the end, Dylan requested a barroom sound on the piano. He didn't want it polished. Uh a quote majestic sound he didn't want that he wanted something raw which it definitely comes off as raw and apparently this was all on the fly robbie had no knowledge of this there was one playthrough prior to record and that's it's all impromptu i mean especially robbie just noodling away hmm. and that was it never played live never touched again put it on the record that was already mixed throw this one on there too goodbye hmm. uh we've had a lot of fascinating songs that are like classics and i would i would put this one up there too this is a fucking like wild song and i think the best ones end up being the ones that never get fucking played live how do you play this live what a bummer of a song you know sure but i mean i mean you can see it on rolling thunder or something like that so so uh, you spent a lot of time if you listen to our intro you played the song you learned the chords you did all the stuff what was your takeaway from this How how does this whole thing make you feel outside of initial sort of you know, just like, oh, it's good. Um, was there anything that, that stood out just before we get into talking about the lyrics and stuff? It was fun to actually play the song. Like, I've, I mean, I, I made our theme song and I've made uh, the theme song for our other uh, podcast, It's Apocalypse Comes Beat Me. Yes. The, Ameri- <laughs> the Americas. The Internet's second favorite Buffy podcast. That's right. Check it out. Hell yeah. Uh, 
But I've I've never taken I for our sign on the window. I really just went like straight forward, try to play the song. But I really try to interpret this song. So yeah. it's like okay, it's in the the key of G minor, which is that classic kind of Spanish guitar yeah. scale that he's operating, and that's why when Robbie plays the guitar, it really sounds like that. It takes on those vibes. Um, but I wanted it to sound nothing like that, and so. I don't know. It was really fun to build everything. Like, but I didn't play the drums, but I built the drum track, right? Like, I, it, and this is like it really lends itself to that because it's so basic. Right. It's like you can really go any direction. It's just a guitar track and a couple of piano chords. And, I don't know. It was a lot of fun. It. So, if any, anybody doesn't know what a dirge is, yeah. it's like I mean, that's important. Like, yeah. Thematically, it's like a, a funeral march, right? right? And so, the most famous funeral march is uh, Chopin's, right? What is yeah. it? Uh, march funebre, which literally means funeral march. Which is just a regular march played in a minor key. Right. What's a march? What's a march? John Philip Sousa, famous for his marches, right? Yeah. And that is basically just a song with a simple beat, straightforward beat, almost always in 4-4 time because they were literally meant to be played with marches. And all that means is to keep time, right? So when you hear army guys being like, heard it on the radio, and I call back, heard it on the radio, it's because you're supposed to be stomp, 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 that consistent 4-4 beat. It's just an easy, because people, I think, throughout history can tap into that rhythm like yeah. a very basic rhythm so to build construct a song it's around it, even now like pop songs today are really built around that 4-4 four, four rhythm the tempo might be slower or faster but right. it's still so that's what a march is just like a consistent beat that you can follow along easily that's just gonna take away the whole time so this is that slowed right. and in a minor key which you can definitely hear because Bob's dun 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 and that's the whole yeah. Hold on. Well, I think a lot of people probably can't differentiate between 4-4 four, four time and then moving off of it. Like they might think, oh, there's something to this song. But really probably what they're picking up on most viscerally is that change from 4-4, four, four, which is like the standard. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what your brain is always looking for. So it's always, if that's off of it, then you're like, oh, mm-hmm. something else is happening here. Right. And 4-4 and four, cool. four time means, so it's mu- music theory talk. I know. That's four beats per measure. Right. So measures are like... Uh, how would you think about it? It's like a, a chunk, right? right? So when you hear a song that's four beats per measure, that's you're going to hear four quarter notes, beat, beat, or whole note, which takes up four beats long. So beat. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Music theory. I yeah. got it. <laughs> right. But I mean, again, people probably can't explain it, but like, you know, if you sit down, like there's great videos online that explain that with popular songs and right. show you the differences. So if you don't really know, it's, I mean, I recommend it. I'm certainly no expert, but it's taken me a long time to learn those types of things because I'm not, even though I, I like played in my youth, I never, never thought about what I was doing. And you don't need to get into the weeds. It's really just no. instructive just to like have a really short, concise five minute overview of like, this is why music sounds this way. Like, huh. And oh. then you'll just notice it and stuff. Does that get you anything? I don't know. It's just well, a neat little thing to know. It is, yeah. but it does get you something because it makes you a more well-rounded person. And you'll appreciate music maybe a little bit more on a slightly different level. And that's what we're here for, right? That's all appreciate we're here for. Appreciate music as art. That's absolutely right. And a science kind of sometimes. Yeah. yeah. And that's what we're here to do at Sign on the Window. Is it that, that does that explain dirge? It does explain dirt. I think we're done. I, mean, I don't think there's anything more. Yeah, I mean, just I mean, on a basic level, I, I you know, the piano, the guitar, his voice is incredible, especially when it comes out of nowhere. It's um, Clinton Halen says it's uh, the vocal performance alone is acidic enough to strip layers of skin. 
I love it. It's really consistent. It sounds good. The the a lot of the quality, the Bob Dylan. I don't like Bob Dylan's voice quality is not oh, yeah. in this at all. Yeah, um, and not me, the general. Right. Well, this is uh, you know last week we did one more night, um, which had his country fied voice. Oh God, I already don't remember that song. Thank and, God. And we're five years beyond that, so we're kind of like he's a cleaner vocal. And as I've said it before on this podcast, I love this era. I love his voice here. So it's kind of it's come through the ringer. It's come through the '60s ringer. It's been wrung out in the country voice back to like his traditional quote unquote singing voice. And then it's kind of like, well, I can't really do that, so I'm gonna have my own voice. And I feel like we're like at that stage too, where he's. It doesn't so much sound like Blonde on Blonde. It doesn't sound like Highway 61, but it doesn't sound like Nashville Skyline, right? right? Even though the music might be a little, even though the flamenco-ness, I mean, it's kind of, this one's totally divorced. But the rest of the album's pretty country fried, you know, just kind of like, we're the band. Yeah. We're just hanging out, doing stuff. And then this one's like, really sad, really crazy. It's like his voice had to go through Nashville to get polished. Yeah. Don't we all? I guess. So let's break down the song itself. I mean, I think this is a really, I mean, unbelievably interesting song. Um, I'm going to lead, I'm, I'm going to talk a lot. Robert Shelton has a great, um, he wrote one of the first big biographies on Bob Dylan. He covered him contemporaneously um, in re, in real life. And his book is called No Direction Home. He wrote a lot about this. He said, um, in terms of this song itself he said quote this is less of a love song than an elliptical essay on morbid dependency is he talking about the left the city the audience drugs a woman all the things he once felt that he needed this dark lyric counterbalances solitude with wholeness loneliness with communal completeness and there's camps of what people think this song is about so i'm curious what camp you're in some people think it's about sarah or about joan or about Seuss, or about every Edie, song is about Seuss, or about Edie Sedgwick, or just like an affair, you know, an affair with a woman unnamed. Uh, some people think that it's about drugs. Some people think that it's about the '60s counterculture, um, and specifically maybe his role in it, uh, or other other writers, other singers, because he does talk about protest songs and stuff. Um, some people think it's about fame and what it'll do to somebody. Some people think it's about Albert Grossman, his former manager. We haven't talked a whole lot about him. We'll have to do something in time to talk more about him because he is not with him anymore. So he was his manager during the 60s heyday and part of getting away from the drugs. And, and even that was getting rid of Albert Grossman. And as he well. didn't fuck over just Bob Dylan. It's a lot of people. Oh, he was he was tied in everything. I wonder if there's a cool documentary about him. But, uh, there the, might be. There's got to be. I yeah. mean, he was he was in it. Um, and some people also see it as like a loss of inspiration. Talking about just like the essence of writing songs. We talked about watching the river flow. So this that was about a year before mm-hmm. that was his first song really that he kind of did beyond um, self-portrait um, in the 1970s. So, and that song, of course, is you know just watching. He's just waiting for something to happen. So, this song, some people interpret it as sort of looking at all of these disparate things, kind of sitting on a bench song. But like, he doesn't know where to go. He doesn't know what to do. So, I don't know if you're in any one of those camps. I think the easiest one is to be in is the Sarah camp. I mean, I know you're a. Well, sure. A Sue's uh, diehard, but I mean, it's I... definitely about Sarah, right? God. <laughs> <laughs> I would imagine that it's mostly about Sarah, right? Because he gets divorced right around this time. No, no. So so there's a, the, the most compelling uh, non-Sarah, the, the non-Sarah heads out there, let's call them that. The non-Sarah heads would say that he wouldn't they wouldn't actually break up for another two years or something right but that doesn't so, mean that the relationship isn't already fucked sure and also but the next song after this on the record and recorded before is the wedding song right and we is have sarah, sarah to look this? forward no sarah's oh, 1975 okay. so we're we have two more years before sarah okay 
your favorite song. We have two more years before. <laughs> so no, so that's the most compelling argument against it just being that. But I would say, have you never been in a relationship? Like, you can be in a relationship that's fucked from the day one right, and still be in it. It means nothing. You can still hate yourself for loving them. Yes. You could be in it for the kids, right? I mean, I, I think like being a non-Sarah head for that reason, I think is kind of silly because it's like, I get what you're saying, but I think you're taking it way too linearly. It's not like people just decide one day they wake up and they're like, I'm breaking up with this person. It's clearly yeah. a process. I'm going to completely pull a cop out maneuver mm. and say it's an amalgam of Ooh, all of this stuff. Because nice, nice. I think it is. I don't think there's a narrative here. I no. think it's picking and choosing uh, pieces of a bad relationship, whether that's a bad relationship with a specific person or mm. persons or the music industry, whatever it is. And then just putting them into beautiful metaphors. Like, I don't think that it's a specific event or relationship. I think it's like, this is all the shitty things I feel when I'm in a codependent space. Like when I'm in a thing where I'm relying on somebody, it makes me feel like garbage. It makes me feel like part of me is dying. Is that because like I'm trapped? Going down suicide road. Oh my God. Yeah. Asshole. What a great line. Yeah, that's good. Uh, so yeah, I don't. I don't think there's a narrative here. I don't. I don't think it's one specific thing. Probably right. Sarah was in there, but maybe part of it. I would say that it's probably if you have to put it on. If I'm trying to be like, you gotta have a take. Uh, I would say it's you know having an affair. Yeah. Because like yeah, that that line specifically, which is probably my favorite line, uh, painted face on trip down suicide road, mm-hmm. is like. It's good. That was a mistake. Maybe I shouldn't have done that. But also, I don't care. You know what? Fuck it. I'm glad. I'm having a lot of feelings. Yeah. No. I well, I think that's really it. The overwhelmingness is really. Uh, and, and I, I can't help, obviously, what con- I mean, the whole point of this podcast is kind of contrasting what came before it, not only um, historically and like, you know, linearly with Bob Dylan, but also just in our podcast. Like we listened to One More Night last, last week, uh, last episode, and we I don't think we had a lot to say about it because it was really vague. The crypticness is um, is an asset in this song and it is a detriment in that song. And there's like, like really no reason for it. That's a really good point. But it is why this song is so good to me. How it can be a a critique on one side and then like a positive on the other side. Yeah, it's interesting. Hmm. And I think it comes down to the, I think at that point, if you say, okay, we'll set that aside. I think it comes down to like the music and maybe it's just your preference in country versus whatever this is, which I think, I think anybody listening to music in any way, there's more appeal here. In this song. This song has way more meat to it. I mean, it's way not just that, like, yes, they may have a vagueness in common, but... Oh, no. Yeah, no, absolutely th- you're right. Like, those are just weird in the other song. That's just, like, platitudes to could yeah. apply. Like, you're supposed to copy and paste this into anyone's life. Yeah, there's a sun when, and a moon and some trees. Right. Like, this is, like, fiberglass cities and, like, this is spooky. This is ha- truly haunting, unlike that, where it's like, hey, the moon can get dark sometimes. It's scary. It's like, no, this is loneliness and despair on Lower Broadway. Like, you can't even imagine. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's way different than what I was thinking over here. I guess it's uh, comes down to personal, like, a pers- there's a way more personal quality to this and mm-hmm. vulnerability to this than one, what is it? I can't even well, One more you night. You said it like six times. One just, more just, night. Just, it one the, the moon is shining bright. Yeah, whereas that doesn't seem to be talking about anything specific. Mm, yeah. I don't feel like I know the songwriter anymore at all after listening to One More Night. But sure. here it's like, oh, I, I know where you've been. And also, not only that, but like I've been there too. Right. Like I totally relate to that feeling versus like, yeah, I'm sitting in a room. Okay, cool, man. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Yeah, so I I broke it down basically. I mean, uh, just for like further conversation, I broke it down into those camps. Um, so the very first one, the the Sarah one, I think is the most um, substantial one. I think in terms of like lyrical content, uh, essentially verse one 
part of verse two, all of verse five and the beginning of verse six are all key. So obviously the mission statement of the song, I hate myself for loving you and the weakness that it showed. What a great opener just beginning. And I think, again, we've all sort of felt there and it's cryptic. It's scary. Uh, I think talking about loneliness and things like that are always scary, right? Um, the reference to the hotel, we went around the old hotel. Uh, I think that's a reference to Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands, the Chelsea Hotel. I sat up. Uh, that's also a line in your favorite song, Sarah. I sat up all night at the Chelsea Hotel writing Sad-Eyed Lady for right. the Lowlands right. for you. Um, the New Yorker's Ellen Willis at the time wrote about the song and said, quote, Planet Waves is unlike the other Dylan albums. It's openly personal. I think the subject of Planet Waves is what it appears to be. Dylan's aesthetic and practical dilemma and his immense and his immense emotional debt to Sarah. I think that's true. Uh, the next <laughs> verse, I, I hate the foolish game we played and the need that we expressed and the mercy that you showed me, whoever could have guessed. Um, I think that verse is an all, all-timer, in my opinion. But I think that idea of like the foolish game and like, you know, just being along with somebody and believing them and not believing them. I mean, this is kind of, we're treading the same Dylan Waters at some point. Um, but at least there's a little self-awareness in the guilt feeling of like in mercy that you should like, cause I didn't deserve that. I was a piece of crap. Like right. that's how I interpret that. It's like, you shouldn't have done that. You should have left me. I should have left you. We shouldn't have done this. Like, yeah. And I think, and narratively that gets to five verse five where I can't recall a useful thing you ever did for me. Whoa. That's really rude. And not probably not true at all. Probably not true. Exactly. And so that's that yeah. self-loathing thing where, especially with the other verses piling on, you're like, Oh, this guy's spinning out. Mm-hmm. Uh, except where the one time where you, uh, where you pat my back when I was on my knees. Damn. We stared into each other's eyes till one of us would break. No need to apologize. What difference would it make? I think that straightforwardness is amazing and is way better. That's why Sarah's a piece of trash song. And that's why the wedding song is trash. They're they're just mixed up in metaphors and they're not saying anything real. Right. And so like that is fucked up. Like I, you can you can relate to it, but you're also scared to relate to it because that's that's a mean thing to say, oh, especially totally. if he really believes it. Even it would, though it objectively it be, cannot, it be. cannot be. Yeah. It would be um, miserable to be around him, right? I mean, if he were Sarah, it'd be miserable to be with somebody that felt this way. I mean, can totally. you imagine? That would be terrible. And we're gonna get more. And I think this is it's also a break in terms of writing style. Like he becomes more direct. Robert <laughs> Shelton says, "Quote: Planet Waves is the many faces of love." Wifely figures for children, various female prototypes, even dirge counterposed a life of a love of life against death. Uh, and then at the very end, the very last lines of of the song, Lady Luck, who shines on me, will tell you where I'm at. I hate myself for loving you, but I should get over that. So we spent a lot of time during Planet Waves talking about that line specifically mm-hmm. because we had both interpreted it different ways. Uh, and when I went back and listened to that episode, I still was oh. like, I don't think I, I don't think we. I don't think I got there in my head what you were trying to say versus how I interpreted it. Oh, yeah. I was really excited in a Dirge that he said I should get over that. Like, and I mm. should get over that. I was like, growth, Bob Dylan has growth. He's not just blaming everyone for his problems. You the five that? songs we listened to. <laughs> but I thought that was like, well, even in the scope of the song, it's like, I hate myself for loving you. Yeah. I did like, just, I can't get out of this. I, I'm so mad that I can't stop feeling this way this is all your fault and then he's like i guess i should just get over it you're saying that he's telling himself that he should get over it yeah. i take it to mean that I'll, I'll eventually time will i will get over this in time i should get over this i don't know if i will i don't know uh, if i'm ever going to but it's not that i i sh- he's not making a judgment call and if he should or shouldn't he recognizes he's just that, saying that that's I, probably something i should do i don't know that 
No, not even that. No, it's just he's basically just saying like, like in a in a way, it's like, imagine an ex girl like we're breaking up right now. I'm very sad, but I know like if I've ever had a relationship like that before, I know that I should get over this. I know that not a should. Should is a hard word because you want to like put a judgment on it, but it's just like you're just gonna get over it. I I I should get over this soon. I should get over this in three months and I'll be good. I know I've oh, been through this before. I should so I already should be over be, this. I should be over it soon, but I should but because get over I love that. you so much, I'm not. I still can't shake it, kind of thing. Right. Okay. Gotcha. Right. It, or really, in this case right here, I hate myself for loving you, but I should get over that. So it's like that hatred, that self hatred for himself. Okay. He should get over that at some point. Okay. He knows because he's done it with other people that he should get over it. Gotcha. That it's an inevitability that it will fall away. But it's it's still kind of an open ended question. The parentheses in the question mark type thing, you know, like will I? I don't know. Has he ever? Not that we were like arguing, just like it was interesting to to hear. Because okay, so I should get over that. Yeah, it could mean with the passage of time, I'll get over. Like right. with time, I'll get over that. Yeah, I should get over that, but I can't. Like that's another option. Like I should get over that, but this fucking ah, compulsion to be Ron with you. Howard's voice. He doesn't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> I, I interpret it as I will get over it in time. I am I'm sad that I did all of this. I fell in love with you, but give me a year or two and I'll be over you. I'll be I'll be over it. Uh, this this uh, hardened facade that I just laid out for you in six verses will fade away. Yeah, that's what I see it as. I don't know how how do you see it as? Because I get what you're saying. You but I should get I should but I'm not going to right yeah i should get over it people say i should but i'm not going to damn it and that's right. probably more of the truth because i mean blood on the tracks desire like we're gonna ride this horse for another couple of years until he goes christian bob you know it's like he's right in the thick of it and until they divorce i mean i don't know yeah it's a good question that i mean that's that's why i think that that ending is so striking i, I really like the ending because it is up to all interpretation yeah well, right? the whole song i mean be, and it's also a very simple line. Like, even if you didn't understand the rest of it, I hate myself for loving you, but I should get over that. What? Yeah. Like, that's just great stuff. And it's like, oh, man, I felt that. Or, or what does that mean? Or or my partner felt that when we broke up. Like, that's the vibe I got. Or like, uh, you know, whatever that, whatever, wherever your personal life has led you, I think, interprets that way differently. I guess you could also kind of interpret it in a, like, um, which I don't think this song lends itself to. I really think it's the, like... I should get over that, but I'm not going to, is the vibe of this song, for sure. But yeah. I think you could also take it, like, higher road, growing as a person kind of thing, like, but uh, I should get over that and let go of the hate, right? Like, I'll, I'll let it go. Yeah. And, and not only, like, in the time passes away, it's, like, how things fade, but, like, an intentional, like, I should get over that. Like, I should get over that, right. You're stupid for feeling this way, I should get over that, as opposed to, like, letting time just ha- let it linger and making it an active choice to be a better person. Yeah. And where I just said he doesn't let it go, Ron Howard style, he won't let it go. I think, I think that might even be as true as the other one too, because I think that's exactly it. I should get over that. And he, in a, in a sense, he kind of did, right? He, he put out the wedding song. He kept going with his marriage. They kept working on it. It didn't work. So in theory, he's almost putting all of this out there and saying, but I should get over that almost renouncing the whole song. Like this yeah. was just kind of, this was a writing exercise. I don't want it. Maybe that's why he stayed away from it live. He just like, I should get over that. And not only should I get over it for my marriage, but I should get over this song. This song was just a moment. This was just a cathartic thing for me, but I need to let these feelings go off to the side. I should get, I should get over that. It's really interesting to think of songwriting as a weapon. 
<laughs> like, oh, I mean, yeah, Bob Dylan can wield it. Yeah, well, I mean, first you have to be a proficient musician, like, to understand how to craft the song. Because there's a lot of really talented people that can just, like, for lack of a better phrase, just, like, fart out a song, right? Sure. Like, I can make a pop song, I made it. So, like, for him to have these songs, like Sarah and the Wedding Song, where it's like, there is no heart or shine behind these eyes, there is nothing going right. on. Because it's like, look what I did. Look what I made for you. It's like, I didn't try at all, but here it is. I can say I did. Like, I love you. It's just yeah. so funny. What a guy. Yeah. And and you and with him, you can specifically look and say, Bob, I've seen you do other songs. Like, <laughs> the level of care that went into this is clearly lacking. What you put into the songs where you write about how terrible I am. You put a lot of effort into those, Bob. What's What the fuck, man? Do you think I'm stupid, Bob? Do yeah. you? So the other uh, big... Um, the other big interpretation is uh, sort of burnout for being the voice of a generation. So kind of the 60s, uh, I think verse three sort of talks to that. Heard your songs of freedom and man forever stripped, acting out your folly while your back is being whipped. Like a slave in orbit, he's beaten till he's tame, all for all for a moment's glory, and it's a dirty, rotten shame. Yeah, so that's the one that definitely removes the relationship Ooh, angle from right? it. And that's certainly speaking more broadly of like a movement or an idea. Yeah, that's what I that's what I thought. And obviously the songs of freedom and stuff like that. We think of the freedom marches with with, you know, we associate what he's saying with that time. And I think as we get further away from it and the 60s becomes museumified. And I think that's how most of it is taught to us. Oh, um, sure. We sort of see it very simply as that. But I think if you remove Bob Dylan, if you will, from the from the context of him being in it, I think he might also be talking about. What he could probably see from 1974 was already happening to the 60s, that people were already becoming legacy acts, right? Mm -hmm. They were already becoming, um, you know, man man forever stripped acting out his folly while his back is being whipped. If we stick to the metaphor, I see it as him his, I'm wanting to avoid the 60s acts becoming, um, you know, playing at, at county fairs, right? They're playing the songs of this time that once were vital and now are like just four years ago. <laughs> mushy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I mean, I think he's envisioning something far off. Oh, gotcha. And I think he's almost afraid of it for himself, right? I mean, I think we're putting a little too much on that because I don't think Bob is channeling that in 1974. But he might have been. But he might have been. And he might have already been seeing people do that. And I, I think that this is very like record industry type of talk. Um, the people around him that essentially sold themselves out for a moment's glory mm -hmm. and are now riding that glory forever. They'll play that song forever. Well, that's the punk feeling, right? Like we started fucking writing these newspaper songs. We wanted to try to do something. We wanted to try to make a difference. And now everybody was just like, where's that fucking coin, including Bob himself. Mm -hmm. And I think it's cool that he, like, again, like self-awareness, there's, there's definitely a lot of self-awareness in the song that you don't get. And other songs we've listened to for sure. So for sure. him to be like, the fucking writing's on the wall, man, and this is going to happen to me too, is like, that's, that's great. And I think that kind of ties into the, the fame aspect and the, lo the loss of uh, inspiration aspect, right? It's like, I might be one of these people, and it's a, it's a dirty, rotten shame. This business that we're in to feed our families, we have to like make these songs, but we're not actually making art anymore. Right. We're just trying to feed our families. And that's um, super sad in and of itself because like, right. they're voices of the generation. Right. And now where, where are we? Where sure. are we going? Sure. And but I, and I think obviously Bob has shat on that idea, as you should, because it's also rose glasses on okay. that era, which definitely didn't exist. Other things that speak to that, I think, are verse two. I went out to Lower Broadway and I felt the place within that hollow place where martyrs weep and angels play with sin. Love that line. But we can see, you know, Lower Broadway, New York, Greenwich Village, like talking about 
the era, the place where they're at. And obviously something like the hollow place where martyrs weep and angels play with sin. I mean, is he talking about his fellow, you know, the people that were riding with him, the artists, poets, writers, creators that are, that are there. So if you're, if you're looking for something that's speaking towards a time period, I mean, that might be it as well. Um, I do, I do enjoy that. And then at the very end, the, maybe the more wild, line in the whole song so sing your praise of progress and of the doom machine the naked truth is still taboo whenever it can be seen what the fuck is a doom machine the capitalist monster man well and i think that gets us to i think the, the next one which i think is probably beyond sarah the strongest sort of point but yeah i mean i think people seeing this as like a denunciation of the 60s I think we've talked about that so often. I think people really want him to be like as self-reflexive as he always is. And I think you're right. This song subtly has a way of like reflecting on the past. But I think self-portrait and New Morning and Nashville Skyline are as much of a renunciation of the 1960, you know, Wild Mercury sound than anything else. Like Bob Dylan doesn't need to write. Hey, it was kind of shitty being there. He's like, I'm writing stuff that is diametrically opposed to what I was making before. I think I'm making my statement clear. Yeah. So I think he's already making that clear with the music that he's writing. Um, but I think politically, which is where I want to go next, when he writes something like The Naked Truth is Still Taboo, whenever it, when, whenever it can be seen. I don't know. Bob Dylan's politics are probably, you know, pretty liberal, right? I mean, he's definitely not, you know... a Trumpian weirdo but like he still has questionable conservative type of politics so I I always get you should get nervous whenever you hear somebody especially that you really love start talking about the truth the truth the truth the naked truth the real shit Um, I think Bob Dylan is is just another person like everyone else searching for something so whenever you start to get down to like where you're going to start deifying him I think that's the moment to stop so whenever he does that kind of stuff I don't know I just kind of like I just think about the people listening to him that are like yeah, the naked truth. But the doom machine, so that gets me to what I kind of, I love, probably the best verse in the whole song, verse four. There are those who worship loneliness. I'm not one of them. In this age of fiberglass, I'm searching for a gem. The crystal ball upon the wall, as it shone. second favorite line that the suicide road in that line and i paid the price of solitude mm. but at least i'm out of debt is like mm. oh my god that's a that's you, an all-timer you motherfucker <laughs> that's why i'm like if he wrote this on a whim even just like to shout out those two <laughs> lines period like yeah damn. and all these verses really go so well together it's not like just like a, a an amalgam of like 15 really great lines like sometimes songs are mm-hmm. um he's definitely done that before but this like all of these like these couplets are just fucking great like top to bottom they all work all four lines work with one another to build it, which I think is great. Uh, this is an all-timer for me on a deeper level, thinking about the doom machine. Uh, I think you're right. I mean, I see this as capitalism, alienating human beings. We're an alienated people. And the worshiping of loneliness is the doom machine. The boomers that made this music and that are destroying the world, though that's the doom machine. Mm-hmm. And those are the people worshiping at the altar of capitalism. And the, the, the altar being dividing, dividing and conquering. And, that's, and I think Bob Dylan is saying, I'm not one of those people. I don't want to be a part of that. I don't want any of that. And then Bob Dylan's trying to swipe right on a gem. 
in a world of fakes. Um, so he's just trying, he's just trying to find, uh, you know, that, that shelter in the storm, you know? Um, and D- Dylan searched for meaning in crystal balls. I think, um, what do you see inside of a crystal ball? I mean, think of any movie, the future. the future, but what does it always appear as? It appears as a screen, like a TV screen when we're on phones all day. Right. So that's my black mirror, uh, trutherism <laughs> right there, but he's found nothing on the screen, right? He's found nothing looking into another world. Um, and then, and then the, the, the most interesting line is I paid my price for solitude, but at least I'm out of debt. I think anybody can interpret that however they want, but I see it as Dylan saying, I've paid a price in the system. If we're going back to even the, the, the last topic, the voice of a generation, he's almost like I paid, I paid for it with my creativity. I paid for it with my, almost my life in my car crash. I paid for it with my drug use. I paid my, my way through this. Uh, I was exposed to vultures. I got taken for rides. I was led down bad paths in a godless world. <laughs> but now I can do what I want. Yeah. And it, but not everybody else gets to. I mean, it kind of then goes back to that very top of the line, which is the loneliness and, and just capitalism as a system. It's like you have to go through all of that shit to be free. And Bob Dylan at this point is free. I mean, he's, he's doing one of the most successful tours that had ever happened, that tour with the band in 1974 where – Tickets were selling out all over the place. I think I think it was ninety four million dollars that they made on the tour. It's just like three months, and people were wait. I mean, there were wait lists to get in and buy tickets. Um, I think we talked a little bit about that on I think this episode on the on the episode five, I believe. But um, he can do whatever he wants at this point, right? He's making eighty cents per record sold. He's raking in all the money. But in his head, and this might be a little problematic, is that he believes that he he paid his way through it. Now, I don't know with him critiquing capitalism throughout this song and other songs, too, where that all fits up. I don't really know. But I I love that line. It's absolutely incredible. Well, you could also just describe uh, emotional costs to this, too. Like, I mean, it fits well to uh, an anti-capitalist narrative, kind of, or like an industry narrative. But I think that just the idea of people who love to be sad, and I think that that's kind of... Scalding too, if you're taking this from he's talking about an emotionally dissatisfying relationship with whomever or whatever, like, I don't fucking want to be that. I'm not going to be alone and I'm not going to be sad. Not me, man. I paid and I'm out. Like, right. Ah, that's good. Yeah, yeah. You paid with a relationship. You paid. You've done your time. You're out. Yeah. Out on bond. You're out on bail. <laughs> Robert Shelton says, quote, planet waves can be seen as Dylan edging into a new, a new assault of language on language, a new assault on language. There is a hesitancy, even a bit of clumsiness in his age of fiberglass line, uh, which sounds like he's revving an engine. I like that. Uh, But dirge and specifically that line, I paid the price for solitude, but at least I'm out of debt. Uh, And then generally with another song on Planet Waves called Going, Going, Gone and the wedding song, quote, are examples of Dylan's recurring theme that pain has to be endured along the way to pleasure and that pleasure is, above all, transitory. I know I talked about that on Planet Waves in episode five. And I think not knowing what this podcast was going to be a hundred episodes in, I think we've seen that principle pleasure and pain being to combined with one another, even putting this song after forever young and before wedding. It's like pleasure, pain, pleasure. Pain. Well, not to be, it's all about God, but I, that's also like a pretty big idea in Judaism, right? Like that you must suffer to be saved. Right. Right. Like, well, I'm sure that's a Christian thing. Well, and too, the world right? is like, suffering, right? The, and the Buddha, it's, the world is suffer, suffering. You know, what do you do to transcend it? That that's probably why you go down these 
religious souls, right? I mean, because you want a way out. I think that this is kind of a, craw- a cry for help, if you will, I guess. Maybe a spiritual cry, you know, like what is going on? This age of fiberglass, these crystal balls, like what do I do? I don't know. I mean, how people find God or whatever, is, that's a very personal thing. And I think with Bob Dylan, we just get a very clear outline of how he does. But I think a lot of people go down that road that we don't know every detail of their lives yeah. where they were every day of their existence, you know. So it's tough. You don't want to ascribe too much to Bob Dylan because he's also a millionaire artist sure. who gets to do whatever he wants, right. right? I mean, which he says so in the song even. I think the one that people always go back to because everything's about drugs. I think drugs actually is the only one of all of them that actually legitimately works for every single line. Like if you're talking about heroin, sure, it works for everything. No critiques of capitalism <laughs> necessary. Literally everything out. The foolish game we play. What you do to my body. Angels, where angels play with sin. Martyrs weep. Buying his drugs in lower Broadway. Um, dirty rotten shame. You know, can't recall a useful thing he ever did to me. I mean, yeah, I don't like it. I, I block it. But I... It's great. And the Doom Machine, too, is just an idea of drug use. Mm. And also kind of a critique on people who used it. Because um, even if you go to back to that, um, the musicians, um, if, if we take verse 3 at more of its uh, face value, he's essentially saying, you know, all for a moment's glory. Kind of like you do the heroin to make your songs. Your moment of glory turns out in the end to be a dirty, rotten shame. Not so much for the music industry involvement, but like you sold yourself with the drugs to make this art that will then kill you or you will die while doing it, you know, kind of looking back on it, maybe even looking back on himself saying I almost died. I mean, I could have, I could have died in 66 and then I would be a legend. Right. But do I want to be dead? I don't know. Maybe he does, but I don't know. Yeah. The drug thing works really easily. I mean, I too vague, too vague and too, I think a little bit much for me. Yeah. I mean, it could be whatever. It could be whatever. Well, so in the end, does the song work? In 2019. Oh, totally. Yeah. I think it does. I, because it's so simple in like the on the music side of it, that is. Yeah. I mean, obviously, Robbie's doing some great mm. just like solo freestyling work. Uh, but the, the bones are, I mean, mm, so I figured it out. Well, with the help of Todd. Thanks, Todd. Shout out, Todd. There you go. But like, <laughs> it's, and that's always going to work because people are always going to be able to interpret it and, and bring what they want to it when you keep it. Keep it simple. Yeah, you can play the song as a true dirge. You can play it as the fun, funky song. You can play it as a punk song. You can play it as anything. Mm-hmm. And I think the lyrics lend you to everything. Lend you to sorrow. Lend lead you to anger. It's perfect. Uh, the guitar is beautiful. Melody complex. Lyrics dense. To quote Buffy Summers, there is no bad here. <laughs> there is no bad. Yeah, I, I think even the nature, as it is, like does this song that was made in 1974. Uh, Recorded in 73, out 74. Does it that work on its own just as that piece? I think totally, yeah, too, because it's so cool to hear. Like I said, that live environment. There was multiple times throughout this song where he fucks up the rhythm, fucks up the chord, fucks up the tempo, yeah. like he being Bob Dylan, because um, he's playing piano. Yeah. So, like, it, and it just, like, feels good. Mm-hmm. Also, there's a, a spot right at the end, about 30 seconds to the end, where he kind of mumbles off mic. Do you know what oh. that is? Oh, no, I didn't hear it. No. Oh, yeah. He, like, you think that almost he might sing another verse, but he's just like, ah, nah, nah, nah. And I'm like, what? What just happened? Uh, that's the end of the song. Oh, yeah, probably. Like, we're, we're good. We're good. Do you want to? Oh, or even, go like, ahead. I'm going I'm to outro. I'm going to outro yeah. now. We're okay. just going to. Great. Okay. Four more bars. Literally. Yeah. And even Robbie never stops. Like, it really yeah. is just like, oh, and we're going to
Robbie, we're done. Like he, it's somewhere Robbie Robertson's still playing the acoustic guitar. <laughs> he picks up every day. He's like, I must continue the journey through. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that this is one. Not only there is no bad here, but like this is one that I think we're going to keep coming back to. So I'm glad we got to really talk about it because we will talk about it again for sure when we talk about the wedding song and Forever Young, the, the twins. Uh, what is this? The, the triplets, you know? Uh, these three, I think, are so connected to one another, especially because Forever Young is probably one of the Bob Dylan's more famous songs. It's also such a platitude bunch of nonsense. I mean, it's very cute that it's first on. I get it. That's fine. Love it. Love it. But you see Instagram stories and videos and stuff where that's playing in the background. And it's like, it's just this like, you know, because it is a very nice song. It's a beautiful song. And the sentiment is something I think we all don't want to age. We all don't want our kids to age or whatever. But most people never know that to follow this up with this horrifying nightmare of a song, <laughs> I think it's just really, really great because all so much of Bob Dylan and pop culture is like only seen through this tiny lens. And there is so much, as we found out, there's so much under the surface. So we'll definitely talk about that. Talk about whiplashing, you know, one song contrasted with another. Uh, Blood on the Tracks is nothing but a fucking whiplash back and forth between sorrow and happiness to anger to sad to you know all all the emotions yeah i mean that's this this song itself oscillates mm. between that right? oscillates between that and on the record which i think is just amazing and we'll definitely talk about it with it ain't me babe which is probably the first sort of proto this um idiot wind of course what was it you wanted are going to be on there and robert shelton points out i think exactly right that that dirge the wedding song um lead to a different type of lyrical examination which would not have been if if he didn't do this now Blood on the Tracks would have never existed. So if you want to understand Blood on the Tracks, it doesn't really, you can't just listen to more Blood, More Tracks, the Bootleg Series Volume 14. You actually have to listen to Planet Waves. You've got to understand Dirge and the Wedding Song to understand what he's trying to say a year from now in Blood on the Tracks. So I think that uh, just the connection between those and a chance when we talk about that record at some point, we'll definitely bring up Dirge and Wedding Song and pretty much this entire record. And we'll never talk about Planet Waves as a whole again, which is a shame because I don't think we could have possibly done it justice in episode five. Yeah, well, what is it? Episode three? That's Tangled Up in Blue? The, oh, Tangled Up in Blue, yeah. So we'll talk more. We'll we'll <laughs> devote time to Tangled Up in Blue uh, when we talk about Blood on the Tracks at some point, just because it needs to be said. <laughs> Maybe we create a little vignette that we can put at the start of that one. Uh, but Kelly, at 100 episodes, we are a real podcast. Officially. Yeah. We got it in the mail today. Real podcast stickers. We got our card. We got oh, our stickers. cards. <laughs> cards and stickers. Well, cards, I think, are 200. Stickers oh, for 100. So I'm going to put mine on my forehead and you wear it for the rest of the next 100 episodes. Nice. But we are now card-carrying members of the 100 Club. I don't know. I'm making all this stuff up. I know. Well, Jesus. it's the sticker-wearing members of the club. I'm leaving. That's uh, unexpected. What is happening? I'm going to play a song for you for our 100th episode. It's called Dirge. Thank you. 
you want more guitar like that, tune in for maybe this episode's continuing. More news on that as we continue on with this episode. We are also online. And everywhere. Everywhere. SOTWpod.com. SOTWpod on Twitter, on Facebook, Instagram. If you love 100 episodes, and who doesn't? Patreon. We're on Patreon as well. If you love 100 episodes, not this podcast, just generally. <laughs> just generally. Think about your favorite podcasts that have 100 episodes. We are now part of that. Hell yeah. And respect, respect is due now. So uh, $1, please, at patreon.com. Uh, we have lots planned for next year. That's right. Stay tuned. We're coming back next year. We also mentioned... I mean, we also mentioned uh, Spotify playlists at the top of the show. And I got to say, I really, really enjoyed this week's Spotify playlist. I liked it a lot. Yeah. I like the way that they all flowed together. That's what I, in general, I don't think I would choose any of the songs to listen to on a general basis. But I liked because I enjoyed putting it together. I enjoyed going for a ride. I mean, I I think, um, I I think a little trip down nostalgia lane a little bit. Yeah. A couple of those were definitely for you. Uh, I think that, um, I think listening to this one front to back, no shuffles here. You got to front to back it. I yeah. think it's the way to go. Well, you're pretty pretty great sequencing master when I it try. comes to the playlist. I like to do it I because I like to just think about myself listening to it, you know? So welcome back to the playlist, the Budos Band, yeah. Budos oh, yeah. Dirge, and Cradle of Filth. Yeah. We listened to another Cradle of Filth We song? listened to Of Dark Blood and Fucking. Nice. Uh, on Pan Blood, episode 41, the beginning of season two. That's right. Mm-hmm. Soon we'll be going on the start of season four. That was a car alarm. Oh, I was like, who did what? I just was Welcome to the playlist for the very first time. Opeth, Dirge for November. I mean, good stuff. Good stuff. I mean, it's, well, seven, I, it's a seven. I also did a William Shakespeare sonnet on, on the Dirge sonnet, which was great right afterwards. So it kind of sets the tone. That's why I feel like this was a successful playlist. No, you're right. You're right. Nothing more. The little short dirge. Okay. I love that one because it's right after and it goes right into Cradle of Filth. I like the song by itself, the little 30 second whatever it was. Yeah. Great. I've never heard of that band before. They're huge, I guess. Really? Their top song on Spotify has 30 fucking million listens. Wow. And as soon as I, I was like, I got to pop this on. Uh, it's like, it's got to be Christian rock. It oh. has to be. Nothing in their bio explicitly said that. Right. And they're on a label with like uh, Kill Switch Engage who aren't Christian bands. No. But I don't know, man. The vibe. Are they even that kind of music? Not really. No. It, it said in their bio, like, like, like Incubus and Thirty Seconds to Mars, but then yeah. also like heavy metal. <laughs> what? No. No. Ugh. So it's. I don't know. Love the song though. Love the Forty yes, Seconds. That was great. Nice uh, leading into as Cradle of Filth. Exactly. Uh, Kishi Bashi. That was cool. Flame on Flame, a slow dirge. I like that one a lot. It's from 2016, yeah. and it sounded like some weird 80s match. Yeah, it did. Yeah, the 80s lot. was great. Uh, Justin Justin Johnson, Thistletop Dirge. <gasps> that one on my Once Upon a Time in the West playlist. And he's got a whole album that's called Songs for a Western, which surprisingly, a lot of them were not great for my playlist, at least. So. That's fair. Yeah. But we don't talk. We haven't talked about, well, you got your Western playlist, but we've also got our uh, Seven Curses Expanded Universe. Right. We haven't added uh, one I of those in a while. a great person to score. The eventual movie slash uh, motion comic that we will make for the Seven Curses Expanded Universe. Love it. Speaking of fictional characters, President Lincoln's own band. He's not a fictional character. He's a real person. No. Uh, his own band. It's not his own band. There are not zombies that are alive that played in that President Lincoln's worth. band. Also, I don't think that it was really as codified as it is today. Um, I'm sure the Civil War really kind of strengthened those like 
this is the military. These are what we're doing. We've got our band member, you know, all that kind of stuff. But anyways, President Lincoln's own band, the Consecration Dirge. I felt like that was a good, uh, you know, famous dirge. So um, the, um, apparently there's a documentary called The Gettysburg Address that that's from. Right. Okay. And I was thinking of Lincoln, the movie. Skinny Puppy. 17 minutes of garbage. Saffin Dirge, yeah. I started naming dates at some point. Yeah. Uh, it was a mistake to put it on there. Yep. I mean, it's absolutely just them kind of in a rehearsal space and him having a stream of consciousness. Ridiculous stuff at one point. He's like, Ogre, do you think we should end this song? And then it goes on for four more minutes. So. <laughs> Yikes. Death in Vegas, Dirge. That was cool. Haven't we talked about Death in Vegas before? I feel like we have. I think uh, they have not been on the podcast. Oh. Though, so. hmm. Anyway, it's a great song. And the Fake Boys, Dirge. Nice, weird. I've never heard of them as a pop punk band, Mm-mm. but uh, yeah, it was a nice pop punk song to close it out. Is the album called like Pop Punk Is Dead or something? Pop Punk Is Dead, something yeah. like that. Yeah, it's like a, wearing a black flag shirt on the thing. Yeah, so. like mowing, mowing the lawn. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, uh, I, success, success. So, Kelly, we're also people in the world this week for the final time of this year before we go into our big top twenty, you know, extravaganza that we do every year at the end. What You're we're welcome. excuse me, what? You're welcome for our extravaganza. That's oh. about to happen. Just you are welcome. I thought you were you're welcoming me. I'm like, yeah, thank you. Um, what else? What were you doing uh, this week in the world? Yeah, I can't stop listening to podcasts. So that's been uh, what I've been doing. I like to have a music recommendation, but sometimes I just like don't listen to a lot. But I, I keep going back to fucking Chino Marino. I was like, I'll listen to all of the Deftones again mm. because I love them. I'm sure I've said this multiple times. I probably even said it last week. On our last episode, but they're like a band that I always go back to from that time period, and I don't listen to a lot of the music I used to. So, Deftones, yeah. just by and large, the band, the Deftones, fantastic. Uh, also, closely tied to Trina Marino and uh, Team Sleep to me is Idiot Pilot because I found out about them at the same time. So, Idiot Pilot's 2004 Strange We Should Meet Here was like um, that and Team Sleep album, the self titled album that came out in 2005, mm-hmm. were really huge for me. I worked at this album. <laughs> Anecdote time. I worked at this landscaping company briefly when I was like 16. And this woman who worked with me, who was probably like 20, she, who I don't remember her name, but she went to that show, the Team Sleep and Idiot Pilot show. And she's like, you should check out these bands because they're awesome. And so like they're forever linked in my head. And I'd already been listening to Deftones. So I was like, oh shit, Chino Marino, what the fuck? This is great. And so Idiot Pilot, who are actually from Bellingham. Whoa. It's uh, two guys, Michael Harris and Daniel Anderson. Mm. Um, and in their little bio on Spotify, but sometimes Idiot Pilot is loud and sometimes they are quiet. Nice. <laughs> like, that's accurate. That's an accurate statement. But Strange We Should Meet Here is like one of my favorite albums ever. It's just a great blend of electronic and, and rock and just like screaming and not, I don't know, it's fantastic. But they followed up with Wolves in 2007 and it was a lot more mainstream and way more palatable and it wasn't, it didn't have the same fire for me. But they had a song on the, one of the Transformers movies from that album. Wow. So like they got super big for like one second. And then they disappear, and they haven't made an album until this year. Wow! Uh, it's called Blue Blood, and it's if you like Wolves, you'll like this one. It, it's still like I don't know that they'll ever have that energy again. Maybe it's like you have to be twenty years old to, <laughs> I know. to, to I mean, do that. Uh, anyway, Idiot Pilot is great, and then I went to a Buffy party. Um, that's hopefully going to be an annual thing. This is the second year they've done it in Portland for so it's a Buffy Halloween party. There's a club here called the Holocene that they turned it into the Bronze, which is a club in the show for the night. Um, so they people had Buffy costumes and stuff and it was cool to see the costumes and the DJ was dressed as Giles and his costume was fantastic. However, right. not a single fucking song from the show with the exception of the theme song that was a 10 second version of it. And Which if you want to hear, <laughs> you can listen to our other podcast, sure. If the Apocalypse Comes Beat Me. Yes. 
And uh, you can hear more about that uh, Halloween run-in on one of the episodes, because I'm sure we'll talk about it there, too. Oh, yeah. So. That's probably a good idea. Anyway, so I did that. What did you do, Daniel? Uh, well, you also went to the Mensinger show. Saw the Mensingers. Oh, shit. Whoops. Cult- Culture abuse. Yes, Tiger's jaw. Yeah, yeah. Um, first time seeing the Mensingers. This is like my, I think, third time. So uh, that was great. Obviously, love the Mensingers, as I think we've stated on this podcast before. Uh, oh, yeah. Someone else we really love, Jeff Rosenstock. Uh, Jeff Rosenstock released a live record a couple weeks ago called Death Rosenstock, as Death Rosenstock, his band, um, oh. called Thanks. Sorry. Um, and it's just a live record. And he was my number one of 2018, as uh, famously everybody knows. Perfect. I mean, you all know that. Uh, for for the best best album, best anything in 2018 was Jeff Rosenstock, for sure. So will he be the best this time? No, because it's a live record. It's pretty much, you cannot, no. you cannot be the best when you're playing your material, even though the live record is great. I highly recommend it. I finished a book called The Uninhabitable Earth, speaking of the Doom Machine. Um, it's, a, it's a bummer. It's a bummer. Uh, David Wallace-Wells. It's sort of imagining what the world will look like if we don't stop climate change. So if you want to be sad, there you go. Cool. And I'm finishing my 60s playlist. I'm officially about four hours left. I did a back catalog of everything John Coltrane, everything Miles Davis. So those ones were big ones. I did that while I was writing. Um, it's November. It's Nana Remo. It's writing time. So it's like I've been doing that kind of stuff, listening to that. Uh, Phil Oaks as well, going through the back catalog. I really had not listened to his his back stuff. Tim Buckley, Tom Paxton as well. 2020 means 1970s. 1960s are dead to me. Goodbye. I will be moving on to the 1970s. Speak to me in the 1970s. I thought I was going to do it when I came back from my road trip, but I just had too much left over. And I was like, I can't just leave that sitting there. I need to delete it in my Spotify for good and move on. Then I can have an epic 60s playlist of all the years or of all the years combined into one large one that's what I'm talking about good shit so much so 1970s here we go maybe I'll make it live I'll make it I'll make it live I'll let everybody be able to listen to it so maybe look for that in the show notes of this or at some point what 300 hours oh it's it's long yeah it would be freaking long (laughs) yeah absolutely but it's it's gonna be all of my favorite songs and then a couple of the big the big hits you know the big ones because I also went through a list of like the top I listened to like the top 100 or the top 50 of every year mm. billboard once. And sometimes they overlapped or whatever. But not only did I try to get them all in there, I tried to be as historically grounded in time as possible. So jazz was tough because a lot of it would be in the 1950s recorded, but then not released until Coltrane sure, hit it big right. or something. So it's like, ah, throw that fucking record out because now Coltrane's a thing. So I try to be as accurate as I can be, but things... It always cracks. gets really tough when that kind of stuff happens when things are re-released or. Oh yeah, yeah, and you can you can go back, but I'm like, should this go on the 58 playlist or should it go on the 63 playlist? I mean, these are the things that keep me up at night, so that's just the reality. Millionaires and paupers walk the hungry street, rich and poor compare. Strangers in a foreign land Strike a match with a trembling hand Learn too much to ever understand All right, Kelly, that's it. 100. 100 Beautiful. In the books. In the books. We're done. 
but not forever. Oh, oh not gosh. forever. So we will be back next year officially, episode one hundred and one. And as we talked about before, this is a brand new start. Forget everything you've learned in the past 100. Delete them. In fact, we're just going to delete the feed. We're starting back over on episode 101. This is all going to be archived somewhere. Oh, shit. Somewhere on the dark web. You'll have to find it. Wow. Episode 101 will come out probably in February. I think we're doing sort of a February onward schedule. Um, and so we'll just do that. But we will be back. We'll be back in December. So keep an eye out for that. We'll be posting stuff on uh, looking at. The year in review, if you will, all the Bob Dylan songs we listen to. We'll do, of course, our top 20 that we do every year. And, of course, we'll be here for Christmas, baby. Christmas. So we'll, uh, if you're still hanging last year on that one fact that you learn about all of your favorite songs, don't worry. We're going to add another fact out to every one of the songs that you love off of Christmas in the Heart. We're going to scrape the bottom of that barrel and we're going to come up with a fact for you. Who knows how many freaking years we're going to have to do it. So if we have some surprises, we'll surprise you. If we don't, then it's just going to be business as usual. Kelly, see ya in 101. See ya in 101. 100 episodes! Woo! It's good. Never could see.